Welcome to Quick Clarity, the podcast where we talk about all things 3C. For those of you tuning in for the first time, 3C is the talentism model for understanding why confusion exists, how to turn that confusion into clarity and productivity, and what happens when we ignore confusion and let it harden into certainty. Each week, I talk to the founder of Talentism, Jeff Hunter, about the questions we see our clients dealing with and his latest thoughts on the state of humans, business, and the world. Okay, welcome folks to Quick Clarity. Um, Jeff, I have been looking forward to this conversation because it's a little bit of a new format for us. Um, As you know, we've been collecting listener questions um, and we had a whole bunch come in. Today, we're talking about a few different variations on a theme, um, particularly how CEOs and how leaders on top teams can navigate uh, choppy waters and the emotions that come with them. Uh, So the first question that we have, we've actually received uh, from a number of our clients. We sometimes prompt them to think about how their role and the demands of their evolving role might be outpacing them and tell us where they feel unprepared or insufficient to the task. And one of the answers we've been getting quite a lot lately, which prompted this question is, we have CEOs telling us, my job feels more and more like I need to be a therapist. And I wasn't prepared for it. And I don't like it or something that sounds like that. And so I I think oftentimes when we hear that, it's because a leader is in the position of Uh, navigating and supporting others to deal with their emotions, potentially dealing with interpersonal conflict that gets expressed to them in side conversations. So that's what we're hearing. What do you think, Jeff, when you hear that? Well, uh, first of all, great to be here, Angie. Always love our our Monday morning uh, discussions. Yeah, I've gotten this question a lot. I've gotten this question of like, do I actually need to be a therapist? And, and as you said, I feel ill-equipped for that. And, and, and then it's interesting. I, while I, I generally don't appreciate generational analysis, um, I think as a, as a human who's about to turn 58, I'm falling into the trap of, you know, those, those young kids, those whippersnappers. But there is a, there is a pattern when I see these questions asked, which is, uh, the, the leaders I work with who are older, the leaders we work with are older, let's say like late forties, fifties, et cetera, really have this expression of confusion about this where I experience it a little bit less. And, um, as, as the leaders are younger and, and I think that's important because I think a lot of this has to do with the changing expectations of what a leader is and the changing expectations of what uh, we expect from our work. And so here, here's a short answer when people say, do I have to be uh, a, the therapist in my employees? The answer is no, you don't. Like there's nobody sitting there enforcing you. There's no decree or law that is going to force you to be a quote unquote therapist to your employees. But 
um, when we investigate that question and really try to understand what's underneath it, I think there's just a lot of confusion and a lot of fear. And that's where I'd like to, to talk about today. So what, what's the confusion? What's the fear? So we've talked a lot about this, the pace of change and the, and the world of change. We've talked about how the worlds of talent and capital and growth have sort of fundamentally shifted on their access. We've also talked about other elements of change in the world, but I think this all really adds up to people have a different set of expectations from work. So we know very clearly that for a long time, the people's expectation of work was that it was primarily for economic security. You couldn't eat, you couldn't have housing, you couldn't support your family if you didn't have a job. And so you were willing to give up a lot of autonomy. You were willing to give up a lot of your uh, personal hopes and dreams in order to have a job. It was a big trade-off, right? Like you weren't going to be great as a human being. You weren't going to be able to achieve your hopes and dreams. You weren't going to be able to fulfill your potential. But you were willing to make that trade because it gave you some, it gave you money and it gave you some belief that that money would keep coming on a regular basis. And you can see how in that sort of environment uh, that a person is going to come to work and they're going to either repress or deny anything that would be inconsistent with the power dynamic that's implied in that. In other words, my, my, the CEO, the leader can fire me at a moment's notice or, or can demote me, can shun me, can do all sorts of things that really impair my ability to have this economic security. And so I'm going to play, I'm going to play nice. And by play nice, I'm like, keep my head down, keep my nose clean, uh, grind it out, not do anything. And I think a lot of people who grew up, especially in my generation, grew up um, believing that, you know, that's what, that's what work is. Like it's not, you're not there to have fun and you're not there to, uh, to unleash your potential or discover who you are or to be creative or any of these things. Like you're there to go and, and have, you know, uh, do the work so you can have economic security. And this really frames what then people, why leaders are very confused because that world, the, the set of expectations people have of work has changed significantly. There's a couple of things that have that are accompanying that change. There's a lot of cultural change, a lot of more freedom of expression, acceptance of individuality, expression of self. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot more feeling that there's more of a social safety net and an economic safety net. There's a number of things that have gone into this. But people are showing up with very different expectations of work. And because they're showing up with those different expectations, they're showing up with different expectations of leadership. And, uh, and so this is where I find that when we work with people and they're asking like, man, do I have to be a therapist? Do I have to be my employee's therapist? What they're really saying when you sort of like get beyond that fearful expression of their confusion is, uh, wow, how do I be an effective leader in this new world of work? Can I just pause for a second, Jeff? Yeah. There's a lens 
on the situation that I think you just offered that at least in my ear was a little subtle and I like things to be loud and blunt. So can I, can I reflect it back to you and see if I'm understanding? Of course. So when we hear CEOs say, and, and I'm, I'm using the term CEOs because I've heard a variation on this theme come from a number of different leaders that I've spoken to, and I know I have other coaches saying the same thing. So I'm, I'm sort of shorthanding this. But when we hear them say, I feel like I have to be a therapist, inherent in that, to my ear, often sounds like a judgment of the people who are coming to them with their dissatisfactions or problems or negative feelings. And I think what I'm hearing you say is that we got to swing the light in the direction of the person who's speaking and say, why is that term of disdain? Ugh, I'm supposed to be, you know, a CEO. I'm an executive. I'm an operator, not a therapist. Where is that feeling of disdain coming from? And if we if we sort of dig into that or double click on that, there may be under there a feeling of um, fear or worry that hey, I'm not up to the task of what's needed from me because these expectations of what people want from me as a leader are not what I. Um, thought I was signing up for or not what I thought I needed. In fact, or maybe not what I'm good at. And I just, I, if, if I'm hearing that right, I just want to um, take a moment and acknowledge that, that in that complaint is maybe also some fear, fear of insufficiency or, or fear I won't be doing what I really want to and feel like is, is what I'm great at. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Angie. So just a start with me to do anybody who's listening or, or reading so my habit of mind is to look to the person who's communicating with me, not to judge the people who are outside the room. And second, to think in terms of the system. And most systems have a power dynamic to them. And so what I mean by that is when someone's coming to me, and I, I work with a lot of the CEOs, but you're right, I've heard it from CFOs. Or I've heard it from a lot of different people in different positions. Let's just say anybody who's a manager. Then um, first, when they're talking to me, I will never accept that uh, all the people who report to them have suddenly become free, uh, weak and frail creatures. I don't buy that. Uh, it, I talked again, I talked to a lot of leaders and some leaders are very well equipped for the current time. And so in any moment, what I ask anybody to talk um, to think of is are we talking about a you problem or are we talking like a problem of physics? In other words, like you have, you are up against something that is intractable and um, unstoppable and unsolvable. And, and so like we have to address that because it's just a force of nature or a force majeure or something. It's just a reality we have to confront versus you are confused by a reality that really can be can not only be managed effectively, but could be to your advantage. But you're not seeing that because you're in this confusion state. So that's always going to be the first place I go. And of course, that's where my uh, answer originates from. So thank you for calling that out. And secondly, inside of that confusion is always this BSL narrative. We've talked about bad, stupid, lazy narrative where in that confusion, you're trying to get back to the stasis in your mind by either blaming yourself or blaming others. That's the go-to. And so it becomes this thing of like, if my employees would just you know, get their shit together, 
then I wouldn't have to be a therapist. That's the like outward BSL. The inward BSL is like my, my employees really depend on me. Um, and by the way, when I say employees, I mean anybody in the workplace, not just full-time employees, but the, the people in the, in the, that work you know, on my team and work in this organization really depend on me. And I'm not up to it. I'm insufficient. So that's the inward BSL. And both of those negative feelings or negative assessments block learning. And as I said, I think there's a real opportunity here for leaders to take what they're experiencing as lemons and turn it into lemonade. And that's another principle I'm always going to use is, um, I think you and I have talked about this, Angie, like, don't get mad, don't get even, get ahead. So in our 3C model, when you're getting mad, you're confused. It mad, there's a negative emotional reaction to an experience. Get even is you start to get self-righteous. You start to say, hey, listen, you know, I'm right, you're wrong. Um, I'm going to have to actually defeat you. It's that triggered fight or flight reaction. You're in fight. You're like literally the problem is upon you. And by the way, I do mean literally. Um, and the um, and so you end up with this, this phenomena where you either feel upset or you feel like you have to get even. But the way we want to go for learning and for our development and for building the organizations of our dreams is we want to go into clarity, which is get ahead. So we want to take these moments where people are approaching us as leaders with their emotional struggle, their personal problems, their confusion, their, their trauma, their terror, whatever it is. And we want to learn and we want to evolve. And, and by learning and evolving, that's how we actually get better. And therefore, it can build the company. We you know, achieve our goals, achieve our potential, build the thing that we, we care about. Uh, and in that moment, what we have to do is first recognize when someone's approaching us with their problems um, and saying, hey, listen, I need your help. Uh, they're not doing a bad thing. They're not a bad person. They are a person who has invested you as a leader with their trust. The most sacred thing they can give to you. The very, uh, the very fundamental element of the organization's ability to work efficiently. You know, we, we come up with all these process things and we, we define all these detailed rigorous processes and we do our swim lanes and our Gantt charts and all this stuff. But none of that matters if people don't trust each other because ultimately, as you and I have talked about, we're primates with calculators. We aren't robots with hearts and we don't follow the Gantt chart. We follow, we follow our emotions. And so trust is the thing that enables the organization to, uh, to, to operate efficiently and effectively. And when someone comes to you and says, I have a problem and I want your help, they are telling you they trust you. And if in that moment where someone comes to you and with vulnerability and need and tells you that you just got a signal or a piece of evidence about the most important thing you can have underlying an effective organization, and in that very moment, you're like, well, damn it. I'm not your therapist. You have literally just taken an opportunity and, and turned it into crap. Um, and so that's the thing that I, that regardless of being, you know, 
I think people want um, answers. Uh, leaders want answers. It's like, no, you don't have to be their therapist. Well, you don't have to be their therapist. First of all, you're not equipped to be their therapist. And I don't think they're actually asking you to be their therapist. So no, you don't have to. But what you but you do have to deal with the fact that something is happening in front of you that is a reality that you can either be productive with or you can be um, damaging with. You can either get ahead or you can hurt the trust. That's the choice in front of you. And you don't get to determine um, whether you have that opportunity or not. Um, remember, we've talked about this thing where you build the system and then the system manages you. So if you don't want anybody to come to you with their um, struggles or their trauma or their questions or, you know, or whatever they've got that you are interpreting as they need therapy, um, then if you have that, you can, you can not hire those people or you can hire those people and then send very clear signals you don't care about them and that all they are is a cog in your machine. You can do that. Now, I think when leaders, when leaders think about that, at one level they get a sense of relief, like, geez, because it's so hard to feel confused and so hard to feel insufficient or angry or whatever you're going through. But the reality that you're confronted with, and this is why it's important to understand the world of work has changed, is if you say, I'm not going to hire people, I'll only hire sociopaths. Trust me, sociopaths need a different kind of therapy, but they will not be coming to you with their problems unless they think it's an effective manipulation of you as a, as a leader. You can hire sociopaths, but that's roughly 8 to 10% of the population, and so you've just excluded 90% of the population from your talent pools, which means sociopaths will get paid a lot more and the world will get a lot worse. You can make that choice, but the reality is that's the choice you're presented with, not you get to opt out of being um, being helpful to your employees when, they're, when their um, expectations of you have changed. So the, the thing that I always like to do as I listen to you talk, Jeff, is kind of um, what's the what's the the three step process or the schematic or the template that I should walk away from this with? And so the first thing I'm hearing is recognize when I feel irritated or upset as a leader that somebody is dumping their problems on me in a way that feels sort of maybe immaturely emotional. That um, that upset is probably coming from my own personal feelings of. Um, maybe insufficiency, and, and it's an opportunity for me to explore and learn about myself. And at the same time, it's an opportunity to look at a leading indicator, a predictive signal that I'm not going to get the outcomes that I want from my system, my system being composed of the people who are in front of me and, and offering up these feelings or these problems. And that if I want to be able to get the outcomes I'm looking for, my, my business goals, um, that it's important to understand these early signals and so that this is actually an opportunity. Now, the next step that I'd love to get your thoughts on is how to productively explore that, um, especially if I have you know a, a, this feeling of, okay, but I'm not here to manage your emotions. I'm not here to make you feel better. 
what is a productive way to explore something like that with an employee bringing me, um, you know, the, the way that they're feeling? It might be about a, uh, a coworker. It might be about uh, how quickly things are changing and, and the feeling of burnout. Um, can you give us some thoughts on that productive exploration and resolution process? Sure. Uh, the first thing is, I don't think people are, listen, I'm a, I'm a CEO and people come to me with their challenges and struggles all the time. So I have a lot of empathy for leaders who feel caught in this. There was a moment this morning, Monday mornings always seem especially fraught. And there was a, more, a moment this morning where somebody came to me and they really needed help on something. And I was just fried already. It does not bode well for my week, by the way. Um, but I was fried already. And man, trying to tap into what I'm about to say uh, to answer your question, that was really hard. Um, but you know what? That's what I asked for. In other words, like I understand that the reality of the system I built is I want to honor the trust people are investing in me by bringing me these challenges. At the same time, I understand human beings and what human beings are like, and I don't want to create a dependency. Because a lot of times what you see in organizations is the leader or manager isn't helping the person come to a good answer themselves. They're giving them the answer and they're micromanaging them. And that can feel really good in the moment. Really good. If I, I mean, listen, we've all been in this place where things just seem to be falling apart and we go to somebody who we perceive has power uh, and authority and agency to like solve our problem and they take it off our, they take it off our shoulders and take it on to them. Man, doesn't that feel great? There's a problem with that, however. Um, that means that the, the, when that happens, that means I'm not developing the capability to solve that problem myself. I'm not developing the sufficiency to be able to grow and learn. I'm being robbed of that opportunity. And so, um, and by robbed, I, I mean that the manager, rather than being going through the steps I'm about to talk about, just takes it off my plate or is dismissive or whatever. So, so I have deep compassion for this. I know how difficult it is, but let's go through it. So this is very basic 101 stuff. And this is why I say um, it's so important for leaders to have a clarity coach by their side or somebody they trust because you're going to need to be able to talk about this and talk about the specifics, not just the feelings, but the specific instances so you can work through it at that, at that detail and that level. But the first thing when someone comes to you is they need to feel acknowledged in that moment. Again, you don't have to acknowledge them. You'll just pay a price for not doing it. And being upset because you have to pay a price um, is petty. So just to be clear, you asked to be leader. I asked to be leader. I volunteered. I worked hard to get into this position. And then being upset because people are treating me like a leader Whenever I catch myself in that self-pity, and I do sometimes, uh, I reflect upon, wow, that's, that's really not the person I want to be. The person I want to be is I want to be the person who in that moment is their very best. And in being my very best, 
We all have our good days and our bad days. But in my good days, I have the patience and care to actually listen to what the person is saying and acknowledge what they're saying. Basic communication strategy, right? If you feel like you don't have time to listen to them, then at least give them the time to tell them when you will have time. So if you say like someone all of a sudden, you know, jumps into your office or jumps on your a text or whatever and says, I have got this thing that's going on. I really need help. And let's say you're going through something profound at that same time. You don't have to be super person and figure out how to put your stuff aside so you can be there for them. You probably won't be effective in that moment. You definitely are not going to be fully attentive in that moment. So what you want to do is say, hey, listen, can I get back to you later today? Can we talk tonight? Whatever it is. I care about this. I want to be good for it. I want to be present for it. I'm just not going to be able to be that right now. I believe that human beings can respect that level of communication. They can respect that you're putting yourself in the picture and saying, here's what I would need to actually be good in this moment. Um, And so that's step one. Step two, when you're having the conversation, you have to actually be listening. This is such... (laughs) Such simple advice, and it's so hard. So what you're going to want to do, because you're really in the midst of just tons and tons of stuff, you got too many things on your to-do list, the morning is blown up, what you're going to want to do is get to solve as fast as possible. That's what you're going to want to do. But when people are bringing you their problems, often they don't want a solve. So this is an old aphorism in a lot of relationships. A lot of relationships, one, one partner brings the other partner, um, you know, their trouble and the, the second partner immediately jumps in to solve when really the problem here is to be heard and acknowledged. And so I, so this don't jump into solution until you have understanding. There was a book called the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey. It was great. I think it was back in the eighties, maybe early nineties. Uh, and one of the seven principles was seek to understand before you are understood. This is an age old wisdom of ask questions to figure out what's really happening before you start jumping into solutions. Number three is guide the person to the best person who can help. Don't become the victim and the martyr to the situation. And so what I mean by that is so many leaders in that moment when they're hearing the person come to them and say, hey, man, I've got this problem. I've got this personal issue, whatever it is, whatever you're interpreting as, quote unquote, you needing you to be therapist. They jump in to solve or they, they, even if they don't jump in to solve and they listen patiently, they think it's their issue to solve. They think it's theirs, like it's being handed to them. But the, the point in that moment is to get the person the help, the best help that can be provided, not your help. And this is where uh, if you have an excellent HR department, if you have an excellent, um, if this person has a coach, if you have a support network, if you have mentors, whatever it is, make sure that this person is guided to go get the best help they can get, not your help. It doesn't make you insufficient as a leader if you're not the best person to help. It makes you very, very sufficient. 
This takes the pressure off of you to be everything to everybody. And it also makes sure that the person is getting attention as opposed to putting everybody's a problem, everybody's problems on your shoulders. And then by definition, eventually you just can't help anybody else. It makes sense, Jeff. And I appreciate you sharing some of the more obvious approaches um, to being uh, an empathetic <laughs> interlocutor and just sort of reminding us that um, in the moments when we feel annoyed, we are unlikely to show up doing the basics well, but the basics can actually unlock a lot. Um, our, our intent was to get through a few different listener questions. So unless there's anything else on this topic you want to share, um, I'll probably shift us over to our next one. Sounds great. Okay. So the next question, um, I'm pulling it up so I can make sure I get the, the uh, heart of it right. This has come to us in a few different forms. The gist of it is um, we have a number of leaders we're working with right now who, to be responsive to the current market environment, the imperatives they're experiencing coming from their investors, et cetera, um, have started to pro uh, prioritize um, profitability and bottom line over growth. And connected to that, they've had to cut members of their team, um, perform you know, what's commonly known as a RIF or a reduction in force. And following that, so many of them have, have raised questions and worked through with us how to do that in healthy ways for their organizations. But following um, a reduction in force or a RIF, many are asking, um, how do I support my, uh, my remaining or even surviving, some of them are saying team members, um, because, you know, undoubtedly there are feelings of fear or uncertainty that are pervasive. Um, and if I, if I need to keep pushing growth, I can't have a mentality of, of fear among my team. And so, you know, the question has come to us in many different ways, but really how do I motivate my team after a riff and how do I restart growth? So the world of work is increasingly unpredictable and fraught. And whether people are being let go because of a reduction in force, because of a, you know, quote unquote, global sort of event, or because of an individual performance issue, or because of a company fails, Vice Media this morning filed for bankruptcy, companies actually, you know, fail. Um, what we know is that things are increasingly un more uncertain and therefore they're more confusing. And so to me, this isn't a question of how do I, as a leader, get people to get over a traumatic event? If, if that is the approach, and I know some leaders really just want that playbook of like, hey, can we just get back to work? Uh, and I understand that. And I understand why they want to do that. But here's the thing you got to, here's the thing that's important to understand. The way you were working caused the bad problem in the first place. And so if you say to your employees, hey, listen, we just, uh, we did this thing where we failed to project capital markets collapsing. We failed to project our markets uh, collapsing. We failed to project our customers not liking our products anymore. We failed to project the opportunity in the market, whatever it is. We, we failed at some level in forecasting or planning. And you say, um, so, so because of that, 
we have now done this thing where people you cared about and have a relationship, they're gone. Um, but now what I really want everyone to do is just sort of get over the tra trauma. Maybe that's a little T trauma, big T trauma, but the traumatic nature of that experience, the severing of these relationships, the casting out of these people. I want you to get over that and get back to work. And we talked earlier about trust. And here's my question for you as a leader. If you were incompetent before the riff, why aren't you going to be incompetent after the riff? You probably will be. I don't, and if you're incompetent, why should people trust you? I think the thing you have to deal with first and foremost is it is inevitable that you as a leader are going to make mistakes. And if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying hard enough. There's more potential and more opportunity that you're not tapping into because you're playing it too safe. Mistakes are the way we know we're trying and performing above the area, above uh, what we're currently enabled to do. And for a fast growth company or a company that's trying to make a difference in the world, to make an impact in some ways, mistakes is often the currency uh, failure and error is often the currency that you need to use in order to achieve that. So if you're not making mistakes, you're not trying hard enough or your vision is too low or something else. But when you make mistakes, it affects other people. Simple mistakes for you can become profound mistakes for others. And what people want to know is not that you're going to never make a mistake. They're going to want to know that that mistake is not going to be persistent. Now, this is what we expect of our employees all the time. Again, I'm a CEO, got a lot of people here at Talentism. Um, I expect that they'll make mistakes. I expect that when they make mistakes, they're going to learn from them. That's why the mistakes are valuable. Not because they're an end in and of themselves, but because they fuel improvement. But I should be held to the same exact standard. I should be held to the standard of if a mistake was made, then what did I learn from it? And why is this unlikely to happen again? And what I see a lot of leaders doing is treating rifts in large-scale events like this as like it happened to them. And frankly, I don't know why anybody would, treat a, would trust a leader who, who treats things that way, who treats people's livelihoods that way. It didn't happen to you. You just didn't do your job well. And again, it's going to be hard to do your job well because for a period of time, if you were in a venture-backed, fast-growth company, everybody in the family dog was lining up to give you a term sheet at these outrageously inflated valuations. If you didn't take that, if you didn't take that money, then you were seen as not really worthy of future rounds of financing. Then you take the money and you're encouraged by your board to spend it so you can get to the next round you're going to make a lot of mistakes in that environment. That environment is not, um, those circumstances, that system is really designed to uh, encourage you to make lots and lots of mistakes that frankly are going to affect a lot of other people, but not the venture capitalists and not you. And so you, in that moment where the mistake finally gets made and people are impacted by that, you have to take personal responsibility for it. And in that personal responsibility, you have to own it and then you have to say what you've learned and you got to say what's going to be different next time. 
So that's table stakes on this whole conversation. And the second thing is, once you've cleared those table stakes, what can people take away from the, the meaning of the work that is remaining? So these people have survivorship. Can I pause you before you go to uh, number the second piece of this for a second? Yeah, yeah, of course. So, uh, you know, it's a, a while back you were um, quoted in a, in a journal article, a Wall Street Journal article, and I can't recall the exact headline, but it was something like, I'm sorry, is the new uh, tech CEO line. Um, because you had so many of these large tech company CEOs coming out and saying, I'm, I'm sorry for my you know, misestimation. Um, during a period of high growth, now we have to call. Now we have to be smaller. Uh, now we have to be nimbler. And what I think what I'm hearing you say is, I'm sorry is cheap. What you can offer people who you're asking to follow you despite your mistakes is what you've learned as evidence that as a leader, it's not as though you're going to be, uh, you know, you're going to have a failure rate of zero, but that when you do have expensive failures that affect their lives, you're going to learn something from it. You're going to be better and you're going to make your organization stronger because of it. Give them a reason to keep following you, not just because you're saying sorry, give them a reason to follow you because you're demonstrating evidence of learning, which is what they need in a leader. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so think of it this way. Here's to me, here's what good learning looks like because I agree. Sorry is cheap. And the thing in that period of time what was happening is not only were leaders saying sorry, but they were making it about them, which <laughs> so they were like, "Oh, this is so hard." And this is like and and it, listen, if you want to if you want to blow up trust with a group of people, just be a narcissist. It's like and that is a narcissistic response to their pain. This is like, really, you don't know how hard this has been for me. Nobody gives a shit how hard it's been for you. You didn't lose your job. They lost their jobs. People care about that. And so when you, so to me, this is what good learning looks like. I am the CEO, the founder, whatever your role is. I was responsible for setting the trajectory of this company. I was responsible in going and forming capital relationships to fuel that company. I got um, to fuel this company. I got lost in the middle of it. Here's specifically how I got lost. I got on the treadmill of just raising tons and tons of cash, not really paying attention to the business, not really seeing how like we couldn't grow our way out of scale problems when there are fundamentally operational and product market fit problems. I got lost in the middle of that. Here's and then the end result of that all of that is we no longer can operate that way because the party the music stopped and somebody pulled my chair. I own that completely. What I've learned as a result of that is it's not just about profitability. We have to go address core problems in this business. We haven't been paying att enough attention to the customer. We haven't been paying enough attention to operational excellence. That's my fault because I set the tone from the top and the tone I set wasn't that. But now I have clarity on that. And here's what you should expect as a result. Our customers are going to be more important to us. Here's how we're going to prioritize that. We're going to be um, taking a look at how um, we can be operationally excellent. Here's what's going to be a result of that. And here is my hypothesis as a leader. If we do this, 
we will be able to extend our run rate, our runway, until such time that we become a investable as an excellent company, not as a lottery bet on the future. And that is a deeply meaningful thing to engage in because as an excellent company, we have the resilience, we have the anti-fragility, we have the stability to be able to continue to make a difference in our customers' lives in the way we've all aspired to, but which I lost sight of. That to me is not an act of contrition that then you turn into like how difficult your life is. That is a well-reasoned argument about what happened, the mistake you made, what you're going to do about it, and why the work ahead um, uh, makes a difference. I appreciate that. I think you sort of segued into the next point you were about to make, which is anchor to the meaning in the work ahead for those who remain. Is there anything else on that topic it's worth saying? Yeah, People, productivity is a big issue. Everything we're talking about here today is ultimately at some level about productivity. People show up, they show up to work, they have creativity, they have promise, they have potential. Those aren't foo-foo terms, by the way. That is literally what you're paying hard capital for. And then people get confused. And in the moment of getting confused, they lose access to those tools and to those talents And then you have to help them. You have to create a system and support them to get back on that path so that they can be their best. And not only their best because that's the way the shareholders win and all that stuff, but to me, more importantly, be their best because that's when they go home from a day of work and they're proud. And they say, I did something today that I didn't know I was capable of and I really feel good about that. And that ripple effect goes through their entire life. So to turn the, this confusion into productivity, you have to work through meaning. Why does this matter? Why should I be going through this? Again, in the old days, it was like, who gives a damn why you think you should be going through this? You need a job. And if I, don't, if I fire you, you'll be out of a job. And then you'll be in really big problems. But you don't have that lever anymore, thank goodness. And so... You have, the, you have the opportunity as a leader to actually help them understand, hey, listen, um, here's why the work ahead is meaningful. Here's what you can contribute to it. Here's the impact it's going to have on other people's lives. Here's the problems we're solving that are uh, important to a lot of people. Those kinds of things become the fuel that keep people going in the midst of a confusing event like reduction in force, mass layoffs, whatever it is. And Jeff, uh, is meaning something always connected to mission? Meaning, so the way we talk about it is there's three pillars of leadership or vision, meaning, and trust. Vision is universal, meaning is individual. So vision is described as something that people want to attach to because they find it compelling. But the meaning they find in the work to get that done or the meaning they attach to like that vision being accomplished is deeply individual. And you can't tell an individual, you can't go to a person and say, here's why you need to find this meaningful. Maybe they find, maybe they'll find that outcome meaningful because it'll show their parents that they're good at their work. Maybe it'll be meaningful because um, it'll give them a sense of pride that they've never had before. You, You don't know. 
So it's going to be highly individual to every person. The vision, the thing you're trying to accomplish in the future, the difference you're trying to make in the world is the connective tissue to the work. When I do this thing, I actually propel us towards that future. But the feeling you get from doing that work or doing that work well is highly individual. And let's say since, since meaning is the through line, the way to re-anchor a team to the work uh, so as to aim for productivity despite um, mistakes that have been made or, or, or the confusion that may come after something like a riff. And if meaning is highly individual, help us think about how a leader of an organization, which is you know, not small enough to go talk to each person, might understand whether there is a pervasive sense of meaning and connection to the work in an organization and, and how to ensure that that, uh, gets, that gets created and that gets nurtured. Because organizations tend to be led by only a few people, but managed by many, the point of contact is manager, not leader. So the vision is painted by the leader it's interpreted through the organization, but the um, meaning comes from the work. It comes from the responsibilities and the outcomes, and therefore management is responsible for making sure that employees actually are in roles, in a culture, getting supported in a way that unleashes their potential and makes them great at their work. The signal from management back up to leadership about whether they are communicating effectively so that people actually have that true north and are oriented towards it, that signal is vital. And that signal is the, um, is the data that you're talking about. That is how the leader knows. There are different ways you can, you can uh, uh, gather that data through different management machines, surveys, et cetera. But ultimately, the managers are responsible for ensuring um, that individual meaning is alive and well in the work that individuals are doing. Okay, Jeff, I think we should pick up on that particular insight in another conversation. What is the responsibility of uh, leaders, which we, we tend to think of as sort of the top few um, most visible uh members of an executive team in an organization? And what is the responsibility of management? Those two things can actually coexist in the same human, um, but, but it's worth describing them differently and understanding each of those domains. Maybe we'll pick that up in another conversation. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. I think we're at time. Is there anything else on either of these topics you wanted to share? Well, listen, I know it's hard when I use language like incompetent, and I'm sure for some people listening to this, um, <laughs> they're going to have a pretty big FU moment. That's fine. I understand that. The people who we tend to work really well with are the people who are going to accept that personal responsibility. And um, what we want to do is help you turn that personal responsibility into productive action. A bias towards saying, okay, start with me as we've talked about. When I'm starting with me, what am I missing? I've asked to be leader of this organization. I've asked to be manager. I've taken the responsibility willingly of my own free will and volition 
to have a certain level of influence and control over people's lives, especially their economic lives, their psychological safety, their feeling of value and worth. I asked for that. I, I expect to be good at it. I aspire to be good at it. And I need help to be good at it. And those people um, tend to work with us really well. And so, and then they understand that I'll use provocative terms like you're being incompetent because personally I'd rather be called incompetent than um, not because that's the path to learning. So I just wanted to caveat that. I appreciate that. All right. If you were listening today or if you're reading today and you, you felt we were calling you incompetent and you felt angry, <laughs> um, then that that's normal. And, and um, we'll highlight this little bit for you. And, um, if, if that really tapped into something for you, um, and, and felt like, oh, okay, seeing myself in that light, even if that label maybe didn't feel quite right, uh, is, is, um, is maybe opening something up, uh, then we'd love to invite you for a conversation. Okay. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Angie.